You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. We're definitely going to talk about this. And we'll talk about that. Pennsylvania's problem for a time was, well, Maryland. It's King Charles I, before his untimely death, who placed the Maryland border at 40 degrees north latitude. The land was granted to Lord Calvert, who founded a Catholic settlement, St. Mary City, to the south. The rest of Maryland was unsettled mostly by European settlers and still had the status when the colony of Pennsylvania was founded. Charles II, the son of the deposed king, rewarded his good friend William Penn with a Pennsylvania colony in 1681. Penn was a Quaker. The colony became popular with them. It became popular with a lot of settlers, and the line soon became arbitrary compared to where the hot settlement of the New World was growing. And the original northern Maryland border, if it was enforced, would go right through Philadelphia. Another point not envisioned in the royal map room, Pennsylvania's new city had no direct access to the ocean. And the land that would connect the Delaware River the Philadelphia was situated on to the Atlantic was part of the colony of Delaware, recently acquired from the Dutch, still home, the Dutch and Swedish farmers. And Pennsylvania wanted to be more in charge of its own defense and not rely on them. Well, they had the people, and Penn had the clout. The line is drawn 15 miles south between Pennsylvania and Maryland, 15 miles south of Lord Calvert's original charter. But to make it official, where this line actually was, both colonies agreed to bring in England's best scientists, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. But you didn't need Mason and Dixon to make the cultural line apparent. Pennsylvania and its Quakers, Maryland and its Catholics, Philadelphia became the largest city, of course. Baltimore was smaller, but like Avis Car Rental, was trying harder. German settlers helped the push, draining land, building canals, and it would become the biggest city between Philadelphia and Charleston. By the time of the Revolution, Baltimore's seaport was a hotbed of privateering, menacing British ships. Did a short stint as the national capital, home of Continental Congress, and what's more, with the revolutionary victory, Merchants in the city shook off British debts and began trading anew with all nations. The city grew, 14,000 people, about half of Philadelphia, and in 1790, largest in the American South 
and the key trader of flour internationally, while Philadelphia still dominated the domestic trades. Yet, for the farmers in Pennsylvania, particularly in the northern and western settled regions of the state, the Juniata River, there was only one marketplace for them, Philadelphia. And it was 50 to 100 miles away for most farms. Difficult travel. So, middle areas like Middleton or Harris Ferry, which would become Harrisburg, grabbed their flour and acted as middlemen and sold to the Philadelphia merchants at deep discount. In Sandy Stone, Pennsylvania, a German miller named Michael Kreider didn't think the status quo was good enough. It couldn't be good enough. He was making a meager living and doing very hard work, like most of the farmers in his area. He was a patron of the revolution. He helped finance the revolution in his area. But he lost a fortune during that war and was paid back only in worthless continent. He still had debts to pay, and he aimed to pay them. But it seemed that all the mountains, rivers, and badly ditched wagon roads of Pennsylvania were against him. Everyone in Pennsylvania, the veritable breadbasket of the nation, at least this part of the nation, heard that Baltimore was paying top dollar from hungry European and Caribbean markets. But Baltimore? You can't get there from here. You know, it's not like today. You're not just going to take a road. <laughs> You're not just going to, you know, we might have, oh, yeah, well, they'd get in their horse and wagon. No. Uh, for some of these farmers, there still today doesn't exist roads through some of the mountains and where, where they were located. And by water, the rivers were full of rocks that would pull apart any vessel, particularly a vessel with a deep hull. Nobody liked the Philadelphia merchants. Ryder sure didn't like them. Paid little, barely enough for the travel. And their inspectors on top of that would flag and send back any flower with the least imperfection. That could force a farmer like Kreider to have to dump their entire winter's work into a river. Baltimore was 110 miles away by wagon from where Kreider was. And it was a 16-mile river ride in addition to a 20-mile wagon ride across the Black Log, the Shade, the Tuscora, the, the Kittatinny, and the Blue Mountain. Treacherous and expensive. No single road exists, still does not exist today as, as of 2010, um, when I'm reading a wonderful book, Commerce on the Early American Waterways by Earl E. Brown. So it was either ruin your sea craft by water or ruin your pocketbook by land. The only one that won that choice was the Philly merchants. Kreider thought of another plan. He would build a new type of boat that was big enough to carry enough barrels to make the trip down the Susquehanna economical. The boat wouldn't have a standard hull. It would be flat. And the boat would not be an expensive one. It would be cheap enough to not bankrupt him before he started. The center would be a 75-foot pine log that he squared. Then two 55-foot logs would be on either side. Four more logs were attached to either of those side logs to reinforce. They were then mittered together. On this, he placed a large wood board that he ordered from a sawmill. 16 feet was the limit that a sawmill could do. What Kreider did, essentially, was build an ark. It was not the way his neighbors would have seen it. To them, it was a jalopy, not a Cadillac, and it sure probably turned some heads. But, 
His ark could carry 40% more than the best-made boats in his area. And while the best-made boats had to be pulled up river after delivering flour, Kreider's ark was disposable. He'd sell that lumber in Baltimore and build another. That's the economics. It was still risky steerage. The only help he'd get on this is from Mother Nature, its direction. The Susquehanna flowed towards the Chesapeake Bay. That would power the boat. The oars, long as the boat almost, steered on each side by one of Kreider's sons, would be there to clear dangerous obstacles and to push the boat where needed. And there were plenty of them. River islands, rocks, shallows, fast water. There wasn't a cabin in this boat. Its whole infrastructure was dedicated to flour. Just a small little walking space on either side and one for Michael in the back to steer. It was covered in a pitch pine roof. This is what the inspectors in either Baltimore or Philadelphia would have demanded. And it had a double hole on the bottom in order to prevent spoilage. A barrel, by the way, is a lot of flour, nearly 200 pounds of it. And his boat had 10 tons. And it wasn't even the limit of what it could carry. The first leg of the voyage was deceivingly easy. Down the Juniata, slow and clear. Its gradient, the rate at which the river bottom declined, was at 9 inches per mile. Manageable, even as large as his arc was. But it was good practice. He was in the center calling out to Daniel and Israel at the oars. They entered the Susquehanna, three feet per mile versus nine inches, faster, deeper gradient, four times as fast as the first leg, but still controllable. Past Middletown, where normally the boats would stop to unload their flour, get it on wagon to Philadelphia or sell it right there. But Kreider kept going. Word of the craft had already spread. So there was a group at the river shore at uh, Middletown watching the strange thing. What kind of boat was this? It was larger than anything they would have seen. Such a long boat that looked like a floating house. And where was he going? There were no markets down there. Was he mad? You're going in the direction of Baltimore, but you have to go through the falls and the rapids and the rocks. They were pretty sure, the people in Middletown, this was the last time they would see Kreider's Ark again. Kreider was heading towards the Conwego Falls, three-fourths of a mile of rapids. And there were rocks, almost designed to dig up holes. Not far from where Three Mile Island was today began the hazards. But Kreider was happy, and he had must have had some kind of knowledge. Line up the boat at this chestnut tree, etc. This passed for 18th century GPS to make sure the ark hit the right spots in the water. Stayed on the right bank to avoid a, a bunch of rocks on the other side. Split on the left just at the right time to avoid same downriver. It was even more complex. Forward progress wasn't good. Every time the ark's front had to be in the right place exactly at the right time, between the right pair of rocks, to make sure that when the water dropped and you weren't going to have steerage of your vessel, the end result would be clear. Future charts of the Conwego Falls give details of how a pilot would line up their craft to enter. Approaching the falls about halfway between Swatora Creek and Three Mile Island, there was a rock sticking up out of the water. Raftsman called such rock a pilot because the pilot guided on this rock. 
You might say, keep the big chestnut tree in the field and the barn on the hill in range before you come to the pilot. The tree and the barn probably were there on Three Mile Island. And his use of the word range meant keeping the two lined up. Many boatmen today use this technique to get their craft in the right position. The water draws to the left at the pilot of Swatara. Look back over the red tavern and keep the hollow in the mountain in range. As he ordered the boat towards the right spot, going towards the falls, it should be understood that Kreider was now going as fast as a modern car down the highway. Traveling faster than anybody on any object could travel at this time. There was nothing the oars could do. The steering choice had to be made in advance. And it was the river alone, bouncing them up and down, no doubt with prayers for the integrity of the boat. Leaving the falls on the left side was the Lancaster Bar, and the right side was the York Bar. The bars, which were rows of rocks on each side, made stoving or wrecking a very possible outcome. Some raftsmen claimed that their rafts reached a speed of a mile per minute. In later years, the local pilots kept a boat at the foot of the falls to pick up survivors. Michael, Daniel, and Israel were getting a quick peek into modernity, seeing things move as fast as we might now not even think a minute about. They had no time to take in the sights. He dodged the rock bars and saw, as the hills around surged 500 feet. They hit their right stops, though, through the Conwego Falls. Then at Columbia, Pennsylvania, you hit Turkey Hill and the rapids again 12 miles an hour, enough to split the arc if it hit a rock. More obstacles, even, as they were about to leave their home state. At McCall's Ferry, the river narrowed, much less room for error. If he hit a rock traveling 20 miles an hour, his wooden craft would have been ripped apart, and he and his sons would have been drowned in the raging water. A very treacherous spot was Fry's Rock. In later years, if one raft stoved on the rocks, the rafts following stoved also. At McCall's Ferry, the river narrowed to 264 feet from shore. At Peach Bottom, the water slowed to a calm pool. But the nine-mile stretch from the Peach Bottom to below Smith's Falls was another test of the pilot's skill. Smith's Falls was a more a barrier, for it consisted of numerous rocks protruding from the water. The local people called it a rock bridge, because at low water it was almost possible to walk across without getting wet. Smith's Falls was named for Captain John Smith. He entered the river in 1608, and the falls prevented him from going upriver. The gradient on this stretch of the water is 4.49 feet per mile. 35% less than the upper gorge, but still much faster than on the upper river. Before entering Maryland, the mile-wide river narrowed to 32 navigable feet at Fanny's Gap. At Amos Falls was the notorious Jobs Hole, which if a body were dropped into it, it was never seen again. Beyond Fanny's Gap was Baldfriar Falls in Maryland, in which lay the infamous Hollow Rock that would take out many boats after the Crider's Ark. Why not his? It's not truly known. The story that we're relating and is relating in Earl Brown's excellent uh, book is from oral histories, passed on oral histories. And newspapers would get Kreider's name spelled wrong. They wouldn't get the full story right. Some luck, faith, skilled navigation of the boat, quick commands to a tight familial operation. All of this could be. Um, a local historian speculated that Kreider might have walked up the river the entire way, especially its tough parts, 39-mile walk, and took notes. 
to write down specifically what he needed to do at each point in the river. So this was an innovation not only in river navigation, but in informational science, right? Even if that might have consisted only of a notebook, if he did such a walk, it would be two weeks of walking to map out four days on the river. Voila, he reached Harvagrace, where the river meets the bay. He sells his ark, and he uses the money from lumber to pay a shallop, a small ship for shallow water. And when the shallop reached Baltimore Harbor with the first waterbound flower ever from the upper Susquehanna, the merchants paid him $5 a barrel, twice the Philadelphia price, plus $1 a barrel extra for opening up a new source. After Kreider's voyage, it took no time at all for the Susquehanna to be loaded with arcs like his, built not to last, carrying pine roofs of upper river wheat, and also, eventually, whiskey, potatoes, lumber, in future years, coal down to Baltimore. Even New York state farmers figured out how to get into that action. They had their own problems with Albany merchants. Water was everything in American commerce, and everything in America today is influenced by it. Even some suggest our politics, right? That's certain, you you know, look at maps of red and blue, and I think you're going to see something. The joke is made that Democrats like water, right? Is it really true? No. But it has to do with the settlement of the country being principally a maritime settlement or river settlements. New England was built on water, particularly what was under its surface. It was William Pitt the Elder who called it British gold. The millions, if not endless amounts, of this very common fish. John Cabot says there is enough fish in the region to not need nets. The fish could be taken in baskets. Heavy-bodied, large mouth, rounded snout, with the notable barbell on its chin, almost like a goatee. Three fins, this kind of green or gray fish had an upper jaw, and Pitt could be forgiven for thinking that it represented America's treasure. Well, at that time, the British America's treasure. Other regions of the world had cod, but nowhere had so much of it. And this was no secret. It wasn't something that the pilgrims discovered, though the location of the fishery was a reason partially in the selection of the Massachusetts colony. Portuguese and Basque ships were in the region in the 1500s. They may not have gone to America, but they stayed months fishing in the region and then pulled their fish back. Vikings, too, were known to have come to this region. And there was a reason. These fish could last without refrigeration. When caught, the head was cut, the fish were gutted, split in half, and then salted. Then they were air-dried until they were hard. They could be stockpiled for months, some in good conditions for a year. They fed New England, more than that. They fed the British West Indies, more than that. They fed Caribbean colonies of other countries. They created a triangle of trade, where in uh, the West Indies, codfish was sold for molasses, which the New Englanders used to make rum. But in the Mediterranean, fish could be eaten on Fridays for Catholics, and the King of France even reduced the tax on dried codfish, so that everyone could celebrate the holiday. Cod was deep in the American culture, deep in the Massachusetts culture. It was, there's 
pictures of cod in the Massachusetts State House. It's on the coins. A codfish aristocracy grew in Boston and other towns. So important is fishing to the economy of the United States at the time of the revolution that it not only ends up in the treaty document, but it's also going to be part of the incentive for the American delegation led by Adams and Franklin to negotiate secretly. They're supposed to be negotiating with France, but to negotiate secretly with the British commissioners first when the Treaty of Paris that ends the revolution is settled. And that document, the treaty, has this language. It is agreed that the people of the United States shall continue to enjoy unmolested the right to take fish of every kind on the Grand Bank and on all the other banks of Newfoundland, also in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and all other places in the sea. I know it's hard to think of all this salted fish and then think that this leads to the career of Alexander Hamilton. But in an odd way, it does. It provides a critical foundation for him at his formative moment. And that is when, as a college student in 1774, Columbia University, fresh from the island of Nevis, he reads an anti-revolutionary, loyalist, pro-British article free thoughts of the proceeding of the Continental Congress from a Westchester farmer. It wasn't written by a farmer at all. It was written by a reverend who was a loyalist and who lived in the city of New York. But the Congress, this farmer said, had misunderstood the colonies. Our feeble boycotts were nothing compared to the great power that is Britain. They'll simply be ignored. They'll find other trading partners. They command the sea. Prices will rise in New York. And we have no trade but that that we can get under the protection of Great Britain. We have nothing to do with these men meeting in Philadelphia. We ourselves, not this Continental Congress, should petition Britain if we have grievances, if you want to do something. Work through our legal representatives, the New York Assembly. So said the Reverend Seabury, Anglican minister. Who responds to this? 17-year-old Alexander Hamilton. Of course, also writing under a surname. He calls him presumptuous. Says, the Westchester farmers no friends to rights. He wants to see one group of men, the Americans, enslaved by another, the British. He endeavors, they say, to persuade us that it is a Christian duty to be plundered of all that we have because some of our fellow subjects are wicked enough to desire it of us. Hamilton really nails down the revolutionary articulation right there. He also, at 17 years or old, put a kind of common, modern misconception about the revolution, one that we're going to see Washington echo later, that they endeavor to persuade us that the whole contest is about a threepence per pound tax on East India tea. Whereas the whole world knows it is built on this interesting question. Whether the inhabitants of Great Britain have a right to dispense of the lives and properties of the inhabitants of America. So where do the fish come in in this Hamilton-Seabury debate? Well, Seabury in one of his letters, and they'll go back and forth with a few, 
said that the West Indies could live without America. No, Hamilton says, and he knows because he's lived there. They cannot. The West Indies deprive the rich part of the British colonial empire. That's not really the New England states. It's not really New York. It's to some degree the south of the British America, and it's particularly the Caribbeans, where the entire British economic benefit is coming from. And he knows that they can't feed themselves. And yes, the time we're talking about, the Caribbean can't feed its slave population without America. And that feeding, a good percentage of it, is codfish. Hamilton signs his letters, A Friend to America. And this little um, exchange with Seabury and him forming a college artillery unit boosts his career. He becomes a trusted lieutenant to Washington, and he's at the finishing moment of Yorktown, leading a final charge. But he never loses the focus on commerce. In his mind, America will be built by commerce. It will be in- independent the more commerce that it has. Just as he disagreed with the backward notions of Seabury and loyalists, he also disagreed with what he considered backward notions, the Jeffersonians that would come later, that America should be purely an agricultural land, that it shouldn't proceed with industry and commerce. As a New Yorker, like so many of them, he would go over to the New Jersey and see the wonder that was the falls near what is now Patterson, New Jersey. And in that great falls he saw a vision for the independence of America. He forms the Society for Establishing Useful Manufactures, chartered by New Jersey, but promoted by he in November 1791. Hamilton said that his reputation was deeply concerned in the fortunes of the society. Really, his project, he failed in it, with great help from the neglect of others, the money panic that greeted its commencement, and bad judgment and experience on the part of all. On paper, it was the first sizable industrial undertaking in the United States. At first, there were failures. No real industry formed. Some equipment that was purchased by the society was taken and moved to other locations. A lottery to support the project is postponed. Town lots are offered at lowered prices just to get anyone who will build a home. A generation later, Hamilton's hopes began to be realized. The War of 1812 convinced people that the country should be more self-sufficient. The Society of Establishing Useful Manufacturers shared in the resurgence 10 years after Hamilton's death. Under the stimulus of war, the town of Patterson, New Jersey was flourishing beyond the most sanguine expectations. A schoolhouse and church were to be erected to serve the expanding population. Indeed, the sum the Society for Establishing Useful Manufacturers that Hamilton starts exists in Patterson until 1945 when it's assumed by the town. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the last episode, we talked about the stock market crash of 1929. It seemed to be the defeat of a new era of commerce, of, of thinking that business had not ceased to be business at all, and that America was immune from any downturn or things like that. And it led incredible change, not all good, and the loss of fortune for many. Most of the events we'll be talking about in this episode happened well before that. But there's one event that happened two years before the stock market crash that is linked directly to early colonial times. Two years before 1929, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the John R. Mantra set out from port with 25 men. They would use lances and harpoons in the old style to snare whales. Its three-and-a-half-month voyage represented the last of a whaler ship from New Bedford. And that was the end of two centuries of whaling by European settlers in the region. Hunting of mammoth beasts for their illuminating oil. Sperm oil used in lamp and candles. Of course, Native Americans in the region had been hunting whales for some time. The first European Massachusetts hunt was in 1690, bringing back whales and burning blubber on the shore, bringing it down into the really clean burning lamp oil used throughout America. In 1730, there were 25 vessels. By the time of the American Revolution, there were 300. And now, vessels would adopt a new tactic. They could be self-sufficient factories. The industry ceased during the war. New Bedford became one of the richest towns in the colonies. And the British saw them as a target and attacked them. But after the revolution, nearby Nantucket Island, also a huge whaling operation, was 25 miles from Massachusetts and far enough that it could be, they took advantage of that and became neutral during the war or as much as they could. But whaling from New Bedford and the coast of Massachusetts was shut down during the revolution. But after the war, it came back stronger than ever. And men were leaving, were reaching the Cape of Horn. By 1820, they were whaling near Hawaii. The reason for this enterprise was that Whaling was big bucks. Whalers earned based on the lay system. It was a bit of a gamble. A whaler could make a lot or lose money on a voyage, depending on the catch. Everyone on the ship wanted for the ship to make its lay. It was no pleasure cruise. Days of salt beef, watered-down tea, coffee made from roasted peas, potatoes early in the voyage, vermin-infested flour towards the end, all eaten in a very small galley. Each ship wanted maximum space for whale blubber. Whale boats became little factories. They had to be, because by 1760, the local Nantucket whales were gone, and crews had to go out, and they could burn blubber right on the boat. Didn't have to wait to get ashore. The thrill was when a whale was sighted, and crew members would go out in smaller boats. Here's how a reverend traveling with a whale boat described it. For the first time in ten days, life kindly said, to a weary whalesman. There she blows. Where away? Two points on the weather bow. A mile and a half. When deemed near enough, the captain gave the order to stand and lower. The boats 
were lowered and headed after the whale. And as the oarsmen were hove up, that means had their oars a peak about the place where they expected the creature, it rose hard by the captain's boat. And all the harpooner in the boat had to do was plunge his two keen cold irons, which were always seared to the tow line, into the monster's blubber sides. The sudden piercing made him gasp and run most furiously. It was what many called a Nantucket sleigh ride. The boat spun as it was tied to the whale for almost an hour. Another boat that got fast to him with their harpoons plunged them in. He was killed, as a whaleman called it. That is, mortally wounded. The business began in earnest. The men cutting up the, in the blubber room, standing by a wooden horse with a menacing knife to cleave the pieces into many parts, making the cooking of the parts more easy as one would do with a rind of pork. The boat steers and one of the mates are hurling it into the kettles, feeding fire with scraps and boiling the fluid in copper tanks, from which it is the duty of another to dip into casks. The whale proves to be a cow whale, 45 feet long and 25 round, and it will yield between 70 and 80 barrels of right whale oil. This was the energy industry of the young nation prior to the oil and kerosene that would power lamps in after times, prior to the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania, prior to John Rockefeller profiting off the pipeline and wildcatters discovering oil. As if Mother Nature sought revenge, Nantucket Island burned from the very whale oil it was storing in 1846 and was never the same. In the towns of New Bedford and Nantucket, women had to take over new tasks as the men were in the Pacific for long periods of time. New Bedford was a community where free African Americans could partake in this economy. And New Bedford is the location where a recently escaped Maryland slave named Frederick Douglass would find a home with a free black family that had been whaling for generations. The whale boat was my Harvard and my Yale. For Herman Melville, whaling never produced much money. Fortune was to come in book selling. He hoped that he would be as successful as his idol, Nathaniel Hawthorne. He would publish Typee, a peep at Polynesian life, a story of how he was lived for months in Polynesia, whether true or not. It was marketed as a travel book, not a novel, fictional account of a Pacific exotic experience by an American. Wiley and Putnam published it, and Melville as a travel writer, which was a big genre in those days, became a success. But Melville wanted to do more than just write Typee. He talked to an old man in Nantucket who had a story. Melville had spoken with George Pollard, the night watchman, who in 1820 had seen his whaling ship go down in a Pacific storm in pursuit of a whale. The men were forced into cannibalism. The rest of the crew survived, but Captain Pollard would never sail again. No owner would ever trust me, he said. Melville thought differently. To the islanders, he was a nobody. To me, he was the most impressive man. A week before his 32nd birthday. Melville finished a large volume. He had heard a legend about an old bull whale, Mocha Dick. While the ships were out, 
hunting whales. This whale, legend had it, hunted ships. One friend was surprised. He turned the whale fishery into a romantic novel, he told a friend. About the whaling book, it is a strange sort of book, though though blubber's blubber, you know. You may get a whale out of it. The poetry runs as hard as soap from a frozen maple, and to cook the thing up, one needs to throw in a little fancy, which from the nature of the thing must be unglorious and as the gambles of the whales. Yet I mean to give the truth of the thing in spite of this. Melville indeed had high hopes. His publisher, Harper and Brothers, printed 2,900 copies. One reviewer said it was vile overdrubbing, and seamen don't talk like the sentences that Melville created. It sold just a few hundred copies. In 1851, a warehouse holding Melville's books, including Moby Dick, would suffer a fire. Almost all the copies of his books were burnt. But few noticed. Melville would earn the living for most of his life, not as an author, but as a customs inspector. Whaling and fishing, commerce by water, shipbuilding and trading, transport, hauling, dock work. That is how Americans in the most populated, richest area of the country earned their keep. And more than that, funded the resistance, provided the rationale of independence. Much like Melville's story, this is a series where I'm kind of out there setting my whaler off and hunting that whale. I have a beginning part for the series, but the Ark of Commerce series is not one where it's clear where it's going to go. But I hope you'll stay with me. One thing I do know, that I've spent so much time talking about American politics and American history that I've wanted to add in some of the commerce because I really feel that it's a missing part in American history. Maybe it's boring to some. Maybe we don't like to think about our work, right? But it's how we spend most of our days. And that's true of historical figures too. It isn't like the Minutemen and the Redcoats just waited around for a revolution to happen and engaged in a fight, right? George Washington even, um, he had a the flower business and commerce. Commerce is essential to history. I think we're going to increasingly see that it's not just a side act in politics, but driving politics and American history and life. The American Revolution, for instance, the event that creates the country, was rooted in commerce. It could have very well been no more than a commercial event. At the time of the First Continental Congress, it was about protesting. It was about boycotts, non-importation. Here's what the First Continental Congress that meets in Philadelphia, Carpenter's Hall, 1774, to protest what's going on with various acts of Parliament. That from the first day of December next, we will not import into British America, from Great Britain or Ireland, any goods, wares, or merchandise whatsoever, or from any other place any such good wares or merchandise as shall have been exported, nor any molasses, syrups, coffee, or pimento, from the British plantations, or from Dominica, nor, big sacrifice here, wines from Madeira, or the Western Islands, nor foreign indigo, that such owners of vessels will give orders to captains not to receive any goods. And the First Continental Congress 
does more. Pretty high goals here. We will use our utmost to improve the breed of sheep and increase the number. We will kill them as seldom as we may. Nor will we export them. We will encourage frugality, economy, industry, and promote agriculture. And take this, England. We're going to discourage every species of extravagant and dissipation, especially all horse racing, gaming, cockfighting, plays, and other expensive directions. Party poopers, that first Continental Congress. But you see that it's the American Revolution is rooted in using commerce as a weapon. But if you do make these decisions of non-importation, you have to create some system to monitor it. And this really sets up the United States government. A committee be chosen in every county, city, and town by those who are qualified to vote for representatives, whose business it shall be to observe the conduct of all persons through this association. And those who violate will be published in the gazettes known as enemy to the liberty of the country, universally condemned, and they will break off all dealings with him or her. Equal rights when it comes to ostracizing, I guess, right? Congress, Philadelphia, 1774. And obviously there's more. These are measures that George Washington at this time supports. Brian Fairfax, a neighbor and friend, didn't think Virginia should join this, these non-importations just because you know Massachusetts is having problems. It's too provocative, the idea of a boycott. Too difficult to implement. Why not just send another petition? George Washington responds to Fairfax. I would heartily agree with your sentiments, provided there was the most distant hope of success. But have we not tried this already? Do they deign to even look at our petitions? Still, Fairfax urges restraint. He said the majority of Parliament were reasonable, though erroneous. A mild behavior contributes to a reconciliation in any dispute between man and man. Washington continues the argument. For, sir, what are we contending against? Is it against paying the duty of three pence per pound on tea? Because it's burdensome? No, it is the right we have always disputed. As Englishmen, we could not be deprived of our rights. The Parliament have no more right to put their hands in my pocket than I do to put my hands in yours. Fairfax didn't agree, but he and his county did select Washington as their delegate to Virginia's Assembly and then to the Continental Congress. Along with Peyton Randolph, Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Harrison, Richard Henry Lee, and others. I mean, tea is important, and the tax on tea is important, but as Washington gives you an illustration of there in his letter to Fairfax, it's not just about that. The Iron Act is one of those disturbing controls of Parliament, but it's not talked about as much as tea. New furnaces in British North America were not permitted. What furnaces existed, export product, were not to be sold beyond the British Empire. This limited tool production, industrial production, Limited America's growth from entering the industrial age. Can only buy things from the mother country. More coin set abroad. More debt. Small wonder why George Taylor, a furnace owner, and James Smith, owning part of a foundry, signed the declaration. And why militias were supplied enthusiastically across the nation by colonial furnaces. 
Brief American attack of Canada supported by a Canadian who owned an ironworks and fled after Montgomery and Arnold were defeated in Quebec. We spoke about the Molasses Act, aimed at New England trade, navigation acts, restrictions on shipbuilding, restrictions on the sales of lumber. The good thing, like your American resources, can go to Britain, but you can't make ships and sell them abroad. Thomas Paine's line in Common Sense, we should be no forwarder under these laws, a hundred years hence, in that we are now. And worse, because the timber of our country is rapidly diminishing. Tar, timber, and iron are the natural produce of this country. In the bogs of New Jersey, for instance, far from the roads where authorities watched around the seaport, smuggling was big business and something else. These large stone towers would appear. This is an area that's to this day referred to as the New Jersey Pine Barrens. But there was a time when they were well populated and there was a thriving industry that disappeared. John McPhee, in his excellent book, The Pine Barrens, talks about this. Most of the now vanished towns in the pines were iron towns, small precursive Pittsburghs in every part of the forest where fine grades of pig and wrought iron were made. One of the geological curiosities of the Pine Barrens is that rainwater soaking down through fallen pine needles and other forest litter takes on enough acid to leach out iron from the sands below. And dissolved iron moves underground into the streams where it oxidizes on contact with the air and forms a patch of scum on the surface that is partially rust brown and partially iridescent blue and resembles an oil slick left by an outboard motor. This iron oxide film permeates the sands and gravels of the riverbanks and cements them together into a sandstone composite that has been known for years as bog iron. From it, iron masters of the Pine Barrens made cannonballs by the thousand and sent them by wagon over the sand roads and on to the Continental Army at Valley Forge and elsewhere. They brought in seashells for flux, used charcoal from the pine woods to fire their forges and furnaces. They made cannon as well as shot, and they ordinanced the War of 1812 as well as the Revolution. The furnaces of the Pine Barrens were started up each year in the spring when the ice was gone and turned the water wheels that powered giant bellows, which kept the furnaces in blast until winter froze them out. Men worked 12-hour shifts. There were no days off, and the happiest day of the year was the day the furnace went out of blast. In the furnace towns, bog iron was crushed under great stamping hammers, and in the forge town, pig iron was worked under forge hammers that weighed more than 500 pounds. Miles away, teamsters coming over the sand roads with loads of shells from the coast could hear the din through the forest. Martha Furnace was built in 1793, a few miles southeast of Jenkins. The furnace has long since collapsed. 
and a large earth-covered mound remains where a high double-walled pyramid of bricks once stood. There's not a trace of the structure in Martha now. Caleb Earl, a company clerk in a furnace town called Martha, kept a semi-official diary. January 4th, 1809. Frost stopped. Furnace wheel several times. January 7th, 1809. Four teams hauled today. Blew the furnace out at 8 o'clock. All hands drunk. April 20th, 1809. At 25 minutes past 2 o'clock, put the furnace in blast. Delaney and Cox fillers. Hedger putting in the ore. Some of the iron workers were indentured servants. Some of them had been English criminals. Most were not indentured. Each man's specialty fitted in somewhere on a scale of status, with colliers at the low end, founders at the top, and somewhere in between, blacksmiths, pattern makers, and molders. July 28, 1809. Molders all agreed to quit work and went to the beach. July 30, 1809. Molders returned from the beach, Jay Ventiling drunk and eating eggs at the slitting mill. Josh Townsend wanting to fight Jay Williamson. Furnace boiled and metal consolidated in the gutter. July 31st, 1809. Molders all idle. August 1st, 1809. This month begins with good weather. Molders commenced molding for the first time since they came from the beach. Doesn't look like the work ethic, you know, was always there. A famous figure would join in the working of iron. Uh, You know about Paul Revere's ride, but not as much about Paul Revere's bells. He made really popular church bells at his foundry. Yet, Although the famous writer was known as a silversmith, he also got a name for making very good, high-quality bells. He cast his first bell for the South Church in Boston. Without knowledge, he studied other bells, consulted bell makers, and built prototypes to get the right tone. He had to get a core mold for one side, pack mud to the bell's shape, ply wax, then cover the whole thing in mud. A special bell mud made of manure, sand, and clay. Then he'd heat that mold, the wax would melt, and he'd have a perfect mold to pour bronze into and cool. Voila! But that's just a pretty rough bell in its shape. You've got to clean and polish and use a hammer to tune the bell to the exact shape. As he hammered and got a tone, he'd listen to a tuning fork to see if the tone was right. He established modern practices, uniform standards. Politically, Paul Revere supported Alexander Hamilton's plan for a tariff and for supportive manufacturers. Over 300 churches in New England used Revere bells, and he made cannons, and in 1804, he made the copper for the original Massachusetts State House. It's Paul Revere. He dies in 1818 in Boston. The Revere Copper Company still exists. But one of the Revere bells would make its way 
to a very important manufacturer in Massachusetts, the brainchild of Francis Cabot Lowell, son of a respected judge. He'd made money trading tea, but Lowell's dreams of trade came crashing down after Thomas Jefferson introduced an embargo in 1807. Okay, so let's try to make something else. Let's make something here. He saw how the Slater Mill in Rhode Island created the first cotton spinning factory in 1793, and Lowell thought that he could do it better. He built the small mill concept up and created a modern factory with procedures, with tasks spread out among different people specializing in certain tasks. Everything measured well and planned. Not only did he innovate the process, he created some financial innovations. For instance, a joint stock agreement. No one who invested in the factory had any liability in particular. Using the mighty Charles River and multiple mechanized wheels and many young girls to do aspects of the work. The mill was like any, unlike anything that existed. Four floors of carting, spinning, weaving. And unlike other mills which might only do one part of the process, the Boston Manufacturing Company would do everything from raw goods to finished product. In 1814, the bell from the Revere Company was adorning the top of the factory. The bell was not something they looked up to and said, wow, Paul Revere designed that bell. (laughs) No, it regulated their lives. When the bell rang, that's when you had to be at work. Women were working there, were putting in 12 hours a day, sometimes 14 in the spring and summer, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. Two hours before breakfast, quick breakfast, 45 minutes for lunch, a supper at 7 p.m., after work was done, and then some activities, and sleep. Here's a poem that one of the girls wrote. Hark, don't you hear the factory bell? Of wit and learning tis the knell. It rings them out, it rings them in. Where girls they weave, and men they spin. Hark, don't you hear the picker hum? It would a deaf and dumb man stun. Sounds like the wailing of the damned, who in the lowest hell are crammed. But the factory did put together women that otherwise might be alone in farms, and they would read, they would talk, discuss books. There was even a newsletter for the factory, um, the Lowell Offering, organized by a local reverend, where that poem and other things appeared. In 1830, they'd do something else. They'd strike for wages. The economic depression, the Boston Manufacturing Company reduced wages. Within a few days, it failed. In 1836, when their rents, what they had to pay to the factory, were upped, in effect a wage decrease, they struck again. And 1,500 girls walked off their jobs. A remarkable recorded moment was when a girl of 11 stood on a pump, declaring it was their duty to resist and everyone must join the strike. The managers were shocked. The rent strike worked, and it was rescinded. The Lowell Female Labor Reform Association was started in 1845 and had 500 members. They tried to earn a 10-hour workday, but failed to get the state legislature to approve it. But the publicity 
got the Lowell Boston Manufacturing Board to reduce the working hours one half hour. In 1853, Massachusetts established an 11-hour working day. Not quite the 10 they were looking for. It's not unusual that politics and molten metal would mix. Politics and industrial production would mix. Without the factory, there would be no association, right? People on farms with their family don't need to protest the wages. I'm sure they protest individually. So there's a connection between politics and commerce that must be seen. Commerce creates the universe that the politics live in. One of the greatest water commerce innovations in American history took place because, at least partially, of a letter from prison. The letter was from a flour merchant, had times that were so hard that his partner embezzled funds, and he was convicted of conspiring with it and was arrested. While he fled, he wrote a letter to a New York newspaper that the flour business would be a heck of a lot better if there was an artificial river because the existing rivers were not effective to transport flour from Albany, the areas around, to the lakes. This flour merchant, Hawley, developed a conscience and went back into prison, but continued to write letters to the newspaper. Eventually, they were shown to DeWitt Clinton, mayor of New York, soon to be governor of New York, and he decided to take up this project. Not only was it good for the nation, great for commerce, but it's a great political issue, too. It would be great for the upstate, and it would be good for the merchants in the city of New York. 100,000 New Yorkers also signed a petition to the same purpose. In Washington, D.C., President Jefferson was not as impressed. Making a canal 350 miles through a wilderness? It's a little short of madness to think about, he thought. He had a point, though. Based on the technology of the time, a canal planned by George Washington just a few miles long had languished. Well, in 1817, New York State decided to fund it itself. It was a source of state pride and a source of national pride. They would use American engineers. This is coming after the War of 1812. Canvas White, self-trained, went to England, studied the canals built there and how they worked. He sketched everything eagerly, and he designed a system of 83 locks that would control the canal and propel it from Buffalo to Albany. But building canals would be slow going. So he and his team found local New York limestone rock, which when heated and reduced to a powder could be laid underwater, would form as concrete. It was revolutionary. The actual patent for this hydraulic cement would be assigned years later. Erie Canal team right now was doing it. He also had devices for dragging trees fast so a team could pull several trees. So there was a 16-foot stump puller that was invented for this purpose. By the way, you can see if you type in stump puller Erie Canal into Google, you can see a video where you can see one of these things. It's with great wheels, driven by four oxen. So it's twice as tall as a tall guy, right? And it can pull out multiple stumps. While 250 pounds of force could be exerted by a horse, this device would have 10,000 pounds of horse. If you do a little Googling, you can find that replica. 
You can also find an explanation of the physics of the puller, leverage and how power is exerted on a chain and a wheel. But the essence of it is this. 50 stumps a day could be pulled by one of these stump puller machines. This underwater cement, a lot of money produced by high finance, a lot of animals, and a lot of foreign workers, some workers who were held in slavery. This from uh, Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898, a great book by Burroughs and Wallace. Work on the canal advanced swiftly despite the carping of skeptics, daunting natural obstacles, and a financial crisis that shook the country in 1819. Eight years after the first spade went into the ground, and an amazing two years ahead of schedule, the great project was finally done. Forty feet wide and four foot deep, the canal rose and descended a distance of 660 feet through 83 massive stone locks and passed over 18 stately aqueducts. On October 26, 1825, in Buffalo, Governor Clinton and assorted dignitaries boarded a flat-bottomed canal boat, the Seneca Chief, to begin a triumphal aquatic procession east to Albany, and down the Hudson to the New York Harbor. Next to him was Hawley, who had written the original letters from prison. He had written them anonymously, and now, the canal almost built, he decided to reveal himself. Within a year, Erie boatsmen were steering 42 barges a day through Utica, bearing a 1,000 passengers, 221,000 barrels of flour, 435,000 gallons of whiskey, and 562,000 bushels of wheat. Shipping costs from Lake Erie to Manhattan plummeted from $100 a ton to under $9. A few more years of this brought the annual value of freight transported along the canal up to $15 million, double that reaching New Orleans via the Mississippi. By mid-century, the figure would approach $200 million. Enough money would be collected in tolls, nearly a half million dollars the first year alone, to repay the cost of construction and help subsidize an additional 600 miles of canals all over the state in the next 15 years. Its success inspired a frenzy of digging elsewhere in the country and a burgeoning network of canals between western waterways and the Great Lakes drew more distant agricultural regions into the city's orbit. Ohio by 1830, Indiana by 1835, Michigan by 1836. Produce and timber that once rafted southward along the Ohio River now reversed course and headed east towards Manhattan. So New York became huge because of its backdoor waterway that no other seaboard city could claim. So it's going to sail past Philadelphia. It also helped to create in America, create an American independence to strengthen the economy in a way that would be hard to challenge again. David G. Hackett, a history professor, actually suggests that the new economy helped to bring ideas down the canal as well. It brought immigrants to work and immigrants to Buffalo and then on to Chicago and built up the city of Chicago. It should be no surprise that some movements, some of them quirky, some of them great, had their essence along this canal. Utopians, communes, Mormons, feminists, Oneonda, Palmyra, Seneca Falls. The Erie Canal also created 
a system of movement and exploration and immigrants from the north, from the northeast, and made New England not just an isolated part of the country that would never grow, but sent its ideas and people to the upper parts of the northwest frontier. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Certainly, all these industries are affected. Um, in 1818, Connecticut-born Henry Sands Brooks founded a men's clothing store on Cherry Street in New York City, a waterfront location that he described as convenient to the gentry and seafaring men alike. His sons, who inherited the concern, would later adopt the name Brooks Brothers. In 1825, Englishman Aaron Arnold opened a store on Pine Street, dealing in silks, woolen, laces, shawls, and novelties from Europe and the Orient. In 1829, another English immigrant, Samuel Lord, went partners with George Washington Taylor, his wife's cousin. The web of canals, steamboats, and packets that New York flung across the world in 1820s and 1830s captured a wider and wider share of the nation's import business, from 38% in 1821 to 62% in 1836. It also brought an unprecedented multitude of ships into the harbor. One day in 1824, there were 324 in anchor off Manhattan, a huge number by comparison with prior years, but nothing in light of those to come. In a single day in 1836, 921 vessels lined the East River, and another 320 bobbed along the Hudson. Dozens of new wharves, hastily constructed, of hewn log frames filled with loose stone and earth sprouted out from the shores of both the East River and the Hudson River, all tidally numbered. There created a new breed of businessmen, a wholesale merchant or jobber who bought, say, cheap imported British manufactured goods at auction and shipped them on commission to far-off country storekeepers via coastal packets and the Erie Canal. Visitors and native New Yorkers alike shopped in retail outlets, another new and specialized institution. Previously, importers had sold off their ships and artisans from their workshops. After 1827, well-to-do consumers would stroll through the New York Arcade, a skylight-covered corridor shared by 40 stores, which ran... New York's attractiveness as a marketplace was further enhanced by the adoption of gas lighting in the mid-20s. Nobody liked the smoky oil lamps, few in number, and not much brighter than lightning bugs. In 1816, a crude gas works was set up near City Hall, 
and tin pipes were run down to several street lamps and store windows on Broadway. The city lit up. Office buildings, fine stores, and plush hotels arranged their own connections and printed warnings, don't blow out the gas. Even an industry that you don't think of much that might be impacted by a canal, what really assured New York of an unassailable lead in the book trade was cheap and easy access to Western readers via the Erie Canal. Every fall, just before the onset of winter, and then again in the spring, city publishers dispatched crate after crate of books via the canal to retailers scattered across upstate New York, around the Great Lakes, and along the Ohio and Mississippi River. Local book printers were hard-pressed to compete. Henry David Thoreau never left the house or cabin usually without a pencil. Could have a thought. And... It was a good writer's trait. But the affinity for the pencil came not only from liking to write or having thoughts, but it came from another place. He made them. He made pencils. And despite his talk about working Sundays and taking six days off, reversing the American work calendar to enjoy life, Thoreau's pencils were pretty good, and he worked hard at them. He spent a lot of time in the craft. John Thoreau and Company pencils made from plumbago, uh, graphite deposits that were found in New Hampshire, put between two pieces of wood. He and his father would go down and sell them in New York City. And he saw it through Henry David Thoreau himself developed a process to improve them because they were getting beat out by European pencils. He did a couple of things. One is that, you know, pencils are pretty, you know, pencil, right? <laughs> But pencils at that time might be two pieces of wood with the graphite in between. Usually whale oil was used, which made pencils greasy. And the graphite they used also were like kind of smushy and greasy. Thoreau changed these things. Instead of whale oil, he used clay. And instead of greasy graphite, he found a way to grind the grease chemically, almost into dust, and then compound it and make a pencil that was just like the pencils that were being sold in Europe. Thoreau pencils became very popular, and the pencil business paid for Thoreau's Harvard education. Later, electrotyping, where Thoreau's fine graphite was very useful for printers engaging in a new process, electrotyping on copper plates, which allowed for an easier printing process for very large print runs, as opposed to using wood. That paid for his other love reading, and writing books. Invention is an interesting thing and often hard to track, though we so commonly refer to inventions by one person's name. You know, James Watt invented the steam engine. But something like the steam engine, the idea of forcing power through boiling water and eventually making that high-pressure boiling water, and going from a system used in a small area like a mine to something mounted on a floating vehicle, and eventually a land vehicle. It was really more of an evolution. To hear one account, John Stevens was riding on the road near Philadelphia at the same time, or right around when delegates were working on the Constitution, when he saw an experimental ship one that was powered by boiling water, and he set out to build his own version. We know there were experiments with steam going on, but he and his brother would eventually produce a ship propelled in the same way with screw propellers under the ship's surface 
people on the Hudson River looked and saw this strange craft and couldn't see what was propelling it. Robert Fulton had gone to London in 1786 to study painting and then switched to engineering. He moved to Paris in 1797. He was working on a torpedo, a torpedo designed if France were to go to war with Britain, when he met Robert Livingston. For Livingston, Fulton's connection to the latest French science was great. For Fulton, Livingston's money, which came from a long line of New York family. In 1803, Fulton and Livingston tried on an experimental steamboat with great success. In 1806, Fulton moves to New York City and constructs a full-scale steamboat. A crowd of New Yorkers trekked up two miles on the Christopher Street dock to watch. Everyone was afraid that the whole thing would explode. But Fulton's boat departed without incident, hissing and churning its way northward. On the way back, the riverbanks were filled with kerchief-waving, cheering people and huzzahing West Point cadets. Livingston had something in his pocket. He had the New York State Legislature assign him the monopoly over future steamboat travel. By the end of 1812, Fulton had six steamboats in operation. John Stevens also built his steamboats, the Juliana and eventually the Phoenix. They were good boats, but he ran up against the state of New York. Livingston held the exclusive right to ferry passengers across the river, and if anyone else did it, the boat could be seized. So he instead ran ferries to New Brunswick and to Philadelphia. Aaron Ogden, the one-time governor of New Jersey, had purchased a franchise from the Monopoly to operate from Livingston's Monopoly to operate a steamboat between Manhattan and Elizabethport, New Jersey. From there, passengers could run for New Brunswick, and that was run by Thomas Gibbons. Gibbons didn't need a New York franchise, but in 1818, Gibbons and Ogden had a falling out, and Gibbons decided to run his line all the way to New York in direct competition with Ogden and in defiance of the Monopoly. Gibbons had the support of the Vanderbilt family. When Ogden won an injunction against Gibbons and Vanderbilt from the New York courts, Gibbons hired Daniel Webster and appealed the case to the Supreme Court. Gibbons versus Ogden ruled Fulton's license as unconstitutional. There are certainly many famous steamboat captains in history. One that we more obscure is Nicholas Roosevelt, who commandeered the steamboat from Pittsburgh to New Orleans in 1811, working with Livingston and Fulton. That branch of the Roosevelt family, yes, related with the same Dutch ancestor as the presidential Roosevelt's, ended up settling in New Orleans. But if I just say steamboat pilot, right? Mississippi steamboat pilot. Who's the first name you think of? Of course, Samuel Clemens, who from the call out of the steamboat pilot developed his pen name. My boy, you must get a little memorandum book. And every time I tell you a thing, put it down right away. There's only one way to be a pilot, and that's to get this entire river by heart. You have to know it just like A, B, C. Samuel Clemens received this advice from Horace Bixby, the river pilot who learned him the river, and he wrote about it in Life on the Mississippi. The notebook that contains that note and other notes that he got from Bixby 
also contains the cargo records of a steamboat clerk, so suggesting that Clemens probably acquired it in haste after he's being yelled at. In 1859, he became a steamboat pilot. This was a big deal. Here's what he writes in Life on the Mississippi. When I was a boy, there was but one permanent ambition among my comrades in my village. That was to be a steamboat man. We had transient ambitions of other sorts. When a circus came and went, it left us all burning to become clowns. And now and then, we had a hope that if we lived and were good, God would permit us to be pirates these ambitions faded out, each in its turn. But the ambition to be a steamboat man always remained. Once a day, a cheap, gaudy packet arrived, upward from St. Louis, and another downward from Keokuk. Before these events, the day was glorious with expectancy. After them, the day was a dead and empty thing. Not only the boys, but the whole village felt this. After all these years, I can picture that old time to myself now, just as it was then. A white town drowsing, streets empty, or pretty nearly so. One or two clerks sitting in front of the Walter Street stores, with their splint-bottom chairs tilted against the back of the wall, chins on breasts. Hats slouched over their faces, a sow and a litter of pigs loafing on the, along the sidewalk, doing a good business in watermelon rinds and seeds. Two or three lonely little freight piles scattered about the levee, and the fragrant town drunkard asleep in the shadow of them. The great Mississippi, the majestic, the magnificent Mississippi, rolling its mile-wide tide along, shining in the sun, the dense forest away on the other side. Then, a film of dark smoke appears above one of those remote points, and instantly a drayman, famous for his quick eye and prodigious voice, lifts up the cry, Steamboat a-comin'! And the scene changes. The town drunkard stirs, the clerks wake up, a furious clatter of drays follows, every house and store pours out a human contribution, and all in a twinkling, the dead town is alive and moving. Strays, carts, men, boys, all go hurrying from many quarters to a common center, the wharf. Assembled there, people fasten their eyes on the coming boat, as upon a wonder they are seeing for the first time. And the boat is a rather handsome sight, long and sharp and trim and pretty, two tall fancy chimneys, gilded device of some kind. Paddle boxes are gorgeous, with a pitcher or gilded rays above the boat's name. Boiler deck, the hurricane deck, the Texas deck, fenced and ornamented with clean white railings. There's a flag gallantly flying from the jackstaff. Furnace doors are open and the fire's glaring bravely. The captain lifts his hands, a bell rings, the wheels stop, then they turn back. Then such a scramble there is to get aboard, to get ashore, and to take in the freight and discharge the freight, all at one at the same time and such a yelling and a cursing as the mates facilitated all. Ten minutes later, the steamer is underway again, with no flag on the jackstaff and no black smoke issuing from the chimneys. After ten more minutes, the town is dead again, 
and the town drunkard asleep by the skids once more. You see in a letter that uh, Mark Twain writes, In due course, I got my license. I was a pilot now, full-fledged. He was quite excited. After a short time as a steamboat pilot, he'll have to leave the profession because of the Civil War, just making a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi, just not steamboat piloting on the Mississippi, not possible. But not before he wrote a brief piece talking about the difference, the two ways of seeing the water. There were graceful curves, reflected images, woody heights, soft distances, and over the whole scene far and near, the dissolving lights drifted steadily, enriching it every passing moment with new marvels of coloring. I stood like one bewitched. I drank it in. A speechless rapture. The world was new to me, and I had never seen anything like this at home. But as I have said, a day came when I began to cease from noting the glories and the charms which the moon and the sun and the twilight wrought upon the river's face. Another day came when I ceased altogether to note them. Then I should have looked upon it without rapture. Inwardly, in this fashion... I should have commented on it. This sun means we're going to have wind tomorrow. That floating log means the river is rising. That slanting mark on the water refers to a bluff reef, which is going to kill somebody's steamboats one of these nights, if it keeps stretching out like that. Those tumbling boils show a dissolving bar and a changing channel there. The lines and circles in the slick water over yonder are a warning that the troublesome place is shoaling up dangerously. No, the romance and beauty were all gone from the river. All the value any feature of it had for me. Now was the amount of usefulness it could furnish towards compassing the safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days, I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that ripples above some deadly disease? Not only was water a vehicle of commerce, it was also sold by Americans in frozen form to the world. An industry not existing much today, and not existing at the very beginning of the nation or during the revolution, was a huge part of American commerce and history, was selling what was found in the lake, usually the top of the lake or pond in New England, in frozen form. No one had thought of it until a New England merchant, Frederick Tudor, first started selling New England ice to the Caribbean in 1806. He put the ice on a ship to Martinique, and the ice, you know, in the ship's hull, kept well, would kind of cool itself, would not melt. He hoped that wealthy European planters would like ice in their beverages. In New England, Tudor was not 
taken seriously. And although the ice made it on the ship, it melted once it got there. But he kept with it. And he built an ice house in Havana. And the ice house, as an investment, gave him control of that Caribbean ice business. He destroyed competitors who tried to sell ice. It became a huge business. Um, and if a competitor tried to sell ice to the same route, he'd destroy them. He'd lower their price till they were gone. His ice houses gave him a competitive advantage. He sold not just to the Caribbean, but to South Carolina, Georgia, near Charleston and Savannah. In the 1820s, New England, mostly Tudor, was shipping 3,000 tons of ice out, a product that wasn't even a product before. To accommodate the amount of ice, Tudor developed a horse-pulled ice cutter that could pull out larger supplies of ice from deeper in the ponds. By the 1830s and 1840s, Tudor was selling ice to Australia and Calcutta, India. Ice also became an agent of change. America was an ice empire to other industries, but particularly the meat industry and the railroad industry. Big blocks of ice, usually from New England, were used in railroad cars in the 1850s, up until the invent of refrigeration and air conditioning. In fact, the early air conditioning systems did depend on the availability of such ice. One of the first recipients of air conditioning this way was the dying president, James Garfield, who during his attempted recuperation in Long Branch, New Jersey, was cooled with a device using sheets of cotton fabric, continuously cooled by being dipped mechanically in ice water with a fan blowing air through. It used a half million pounds of ice. But for the revered president, no expense was spared. During the time that he was in Long Branch, prior to his death, a half million pounds of ice were used in the cause of trying to save the revered president. Now, we've talked prior to this about commerce in New York City and the canals that would lead out. Commerce occurs but is quite different, and goods are quite different in areas that are less traveled. I love William Monk's book. His book is called A History of Southern Missouri and Northern Arkansas, being an account of the early settlements, the Civil War, the Ku Klux, and times of peace. Now, it's mostly about Civil War and Reconstruction, but he does, in there, give you an idea of commerce in a newly settled wilderness land. The country at that time abounded in millions of deers, turkeys, bears, wolves, and small animals. I remember as my father was moving west, and after he had crossed Whitewater, Yes, the same white water you know, similar area. Near what is known as Bullinger's Old Mill, we could see the deer feeding on the hills like great herds of cattle. And wild turkeys were in abundance, while meat was so plentiful that settlers chiefly subsisted upon the flesh of them until they could grow some tame stock, such as hogs or cattle. The country then was almost a land of honey, Bees abounded in great number, and men hunted them for the profit. Honeydew fell in such quantities as to completely kill the tops of the grass where it was open. I have known young turkeys, after they were large enough for use, 
to have their wings so gummed with honeydew that they cannot fly out of the way of a dog. And I have known lots of them to be caught with dogs when they wanted to use their wings. There was no question in regard to there being honey when you cut a bee tree. When my father first located, beeswax, peltry, and fur skins almost consisted the currency of the country. When men would make a contract to deliver any amount or number of pounds of beeswax, and within a given time, especially in the fall of the year, they would either take a yoke of cattle or two horses and wagons and with their guns and camp equipment, go out to the settlements into what was termed the wilderness and burn beecomb. In a short time, the bees would be working so strong that the, to the bait that they could scarcely course them. In the morning, they would hunt deer, take off pelts, until the deer would lie down, and then they would hunt bees, until the deer could get up to feed it in the afternoon, when they would again resume their hunt for deer. After they found a sufficient number of bee trees and marked them, the morning following, they would go out and kill nothing but large deer, case skin them, until they had a sufficient number of hides to contain the honey that they expected to take from the trees. They'd take the hides to the camp, tie a knot in the forelegs of the hide, take dressed buckskin and a big awl, and roll the hide of the neck in about three folds, run two rows of stitches, draw it tight, and then go to their wagons for the ridge pole and hooks already prepared. Knot the hind legs of the skin, hang them over the hooks, take their tub, a knife and spoon, and proceed to the trees. There they would stop their team a sufficient distance from the tree to prevent the bees from stinging the animals. Cut the tree, take out the honey, place it on the tub, and when the tub was filled, carry it to the wagon where the hides were prepared. Empty their tubs into deer skins, return again to another tree, and continue cutting until the hides were filled with honey. And then they would return home. The labor the women then commenced. They would proceed to separate the honey from the beeswax, pouring the honey into hogshead, kegs, or barrels prepared for it, and running the beeswax into cakes ready for the market. You know, and I never got from William Monk's story exactly what they did to avoid the, them getting stung by the bees, but I assume they had some tricks. Either that or they just took it. Here's what he says about the country, too. Those pioneer settlers took a great interest in each other's welfare. And the different settlements met together from a distance of 15 to 40 miles and adopted rules and customs, binding each other to aid and assist in helping any person who was met with any misfortune in the way of sickness or other causes that might occur. I must say that there was more charity and real religion practice among those pioneer settlers, although many of them were looked upon as being crude and unlettered. There was a great deal of sickness among the streams, especially chills and fever. Immigrants came in generally in sufficient numbers to form a settlement. And I have known them very often after they had located and opened out 10 or 15 acres and put in cultivation and broke ground, planted their corn for the whole family to be taken down at one time with chills and fever, not even able to help each other or administer their, to their wants. As soon as the information reached the other settlements, for a distance of 15 miles or more, the different settlements would set a day to meet at the place with their horses, plows, hoes, wagons, etc., and also provisions such as breadstuff and salt. They would ascertain the condition of the family, learn what was needed, and provide it. Those families, as soon as they were well, 
not being acquainted with the customs and rules, would meet them and inquire as to what amount they owed for what had been done to them during the sickness. They would be readily informed. Nothing. You are not acquainted with our rules and custom. We have obliged and pledged ourselves together not to let any sick or other disabled person suffer from the want and necessity of attention. And the only thing we require you is... If an other person should move to the country and locate and should be taken down, that you help in furnishing such aid and necessities as they may need. 1907. He writes this book, but he's writing about 1844. And sadly, the point at which he sees some of this behavior stopping and, and, and becoming less charitable is really only 20 years later, during the time of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, but it's an interesting reminder of a time gone by. And also how the necessity led to the social policy in the area. Around the same time that Monks is talking about, when he's a young gentleman growing up in the woods, another man will write a book criticizing the lack of those type of values. For Henry David Thoreau, it was a little bit different than William Monks. He wasn't in a wilderness area because he was settling in it. He was in a developed area, and he was in a wilderness of it consciously. He had settled in a cabin that he acquired from Ralph Waldo Emerson, his poet friend, on Walden Pond. And there... Looking at commerce in the United States, looking at the inventions, looking at the technology, looking at some of the things that we discussed today, the making of clothes, the cutting of ice so that it could be shipped abroad. He was hearing that from his cabin in Walden and writes a complaint about it in his book. Here's his critique on modern fashion. When I ask for a garment of a particular form, my tailoress tells me gravely, they do not make them so now. As if she quoted an authority as impersonal as the fates. And I find it difficult to get made what I want simply. The head monkey at Paris puts on a traveler's cap, and all the monkeys in America do the same. I sometimes despair of getting anything quite simple and honest done in this world by the help of men. I cannot believe that our factory system is the best mode by which men can get clothing. The condition of the operatives is becoming every day more like that of the English. And it cannot be wondered at, since, as far as I have heard or observed, the principal object is not that mankind may be well and honestly clad, but unquestionably that corporations may be enriched. In the long run, men hit only what they aim at. Therefore, though they should fail immediately, they had a better aim at something high. The ancient philosophers, Chinese, Hindu, Persian, and Greek, were a class than which none has been poorer in outward riches and none so rich in inward. When a man is warmed by the several modes which I have described, what does he want next? Surely not more warmth of the same kind as more and richer food, larger and more splendid houses, finer and more abundant clothing. A farmer says to me, you cannot live on vegetable foods solely, for it furnishes nothing to make bones with. And so he religiously devotes part of his day to supplying his system with a raw material of bones, 
walking all the while, he talks behind his oxen, which, with vegetable-made bones, jerk him and his lumbering plow along in spite of every obstacle. Thoreau's Walden is published in 1854 and details his year in the woods. His time at Walden Pond coincides with a technological development that many of the other residents of Massachusetts would have considered a great progress, and that is that Boston can reach western Massachusetts. The idea of moving cars along a developed track, first made of wood and then later metal being used, really precedes the idea of any kind of steamboat or steam engine. Hand cars are used in mines in Germany in the 1500s. There's a military portage system in Niagara Falls, around Niagara, where the British military have they have a wooden tram road, gravity road. Thomas Jefferson's has a good friend in Chester County, Pennsylvania, who has a stone quarry and uses a rail system to deliver stone. Boston develops a gravity road to deliver stone from the quarries to the city of Boston. And in the 1830s, there's a horse-drawn passenger railroad that's developed in Baltimore. This laid the foundation for the idea of then putting a high-pressure steam engine into a locomotive and using that. We'll talk more about the developments of the railroad in a future episode, but we should note that Thoreau is not impressed. There's a long lecture in Walden about how, by the time you finished paying for a railroad ride, you could have just walked. We don't ride the railroad, Thoreau said. The railroad rides us. This is part two. The website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Please join the extra cast and help support the program or make a, a one-time donation if you like. It really helps out. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.